MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. Today, a new Senate report on January 6th shows what Republicans want to keep hidden. The Biden Justice Department seeks to defend Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. President Biden has ended infrastructure negotiations with Republicans. Republican governors that are cutting unemployment have ties to businesses that could benefit. And Senate Democrats begin confirming Biden's judges to help balance the courts. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Dana Goldberg is off today, but our surprise mystery guest joining us is Amanda Reeder. Mandy, how are you? I am very well. I just got in from Vegas moments ago. So I am so glad you got to have some fun times and a little little time off. So I hope that that was refreshing for your mental healthiness. Yes, it was a little vaccinated adventure with a friend a little a few days away. But I got to say, it was very weird being away from my wifey and my dog. (laughs) Uh, for the, for, for several nights for the first time in a very, very long time. So I'm happy to be home with my fur baby. If anyone else uses WAG, the dog walking app, the little report cards they send you are so fantastic. They are very cute. They're (laughs) very cute. For fellow dog parents. (laughs) And you know, it's really interesting that you bring up how, you know, first time out on one of those kinds of adventures, it was weird being away from home after, you know, being at home for so long because Uh later, later in the show, I'm going to be talking to Molly Jong fast about her latest piece for Vogue about how difficult it is to go back to normal after the pandemic. So it's going to be a really good um, discussion. And uh, I hope everybody sticks around for that. And also today, we've got a two for today. I'll be talking to former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid about the Department of Justice's decision to defend Trump in the E. Jean Carroll defamation suit. I'm very upset about this. Everyone seems black and white on this issue, right? Either the Department of Justice is defending the institution or they're in bed with Barr and Trump. But as with most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and Barb will help us sort that out. So I'm looking forward to that, too. And I'm so glad that you're with us, Mandy. We're going to get to some news here. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story today is the Senate report on the insurrection, except they don't call it the insurrection, nor does it address Trump's role in the insurrection, which they refer to as the attack. But it does reveal a lot that Republicans seem to want to keep buried. But it's nothing new that we didn't already know or were able to assume through public reporting. I want to hear new shit. Um, That's just me. Uh, Give me something new. You know, uh, I know that the Capitol Police knew two weeks before January 6th and didn't get that information to the officers. I knew they were unprepared. I know there was a delay in uh, deploying the National Guard. I want to know why there was a delay in deploying the National Guard, why Charles Flynn, Mike Flynn's brother, was on that phone call, why the Army concealed that, who incited the insurrection. Uh, Did Trump, Mo Brooks, Rudy Giuliani play a role? What happened to the panic buttons in the offices? Those that's the shit we all are waiting for. Uh, But of course, the Republicans wouldn't put their name on this bipartisan report unless they completely whitewashed history. This is opinion by Greg Sargent in The Washington Post. Uh, He says the scope and descriptions in the report, which bears the name of Republican and Democrat leaders in the Senate Homeland Security and Rules Committees, had to undergo extensive discussion to get Republican buy-in. That's according to a Democratic aide on, on one of the committees. Quote, to get bipartisan agreement, the language had to be carefully negotiated. So it had to be rewritten. The result is that the report minimized the importance of key topics. Among those uh, topics were the extent of Trump's lies about the illegitimacy of the election to the in the run up to the attack, quote unquote, and the degree to which Trump's supporting rioters were driven by the express goal of subverting the outcome of the election. For instance, the section entitled Events of January 6th <laughs> instead of the insurrection. The report carefully notes that after the networks called the outcome of the election, Trump, quote, continued to assert that the election was stolen from him without noting explicitly that that is fucking bullshit or that he told this lie relentlessly in previous days to whip up supporters to descend on the Capitol. Similarly, CNN reports negotiators carefully avoided using the word insurrection for the very same reasons. So to the degree that this report does shed light on the depths of Trump's lying and the rioters motives, It mostly transmits 
this via quotes and transcripts from key intelligence and law enforcement officials rather than taking an official stand on it. To be clear, there are understandable reasons for Democrats to undergo such negotiations to get Republican buy-in. The most important aspect of this report is its documentation of security failures and recommendations to law enforcement, which we do want Republicans to put their names on as understanding that it happened. The report documents the Capitol Police, like I said, had more information indicating mobilization for a violent attack than previously known, and that extensive communication breakdowns prevented that information from being acted upon. Mm, Communication breakdowns or withholdings? Anyway. Yeah, or unwillingness to act because (laughs) Trump. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And in the end, though, the Senate report shows how powerful a fuller January 6th accounting could be. Uh, It could document in similarly compelling detail the role of Trump's lies in inciting the insurrection. They could call it an insurrection, for one. That'd be a good start. And the conversations Trump might have had with other lawmakers during the attack, demonstrating his true intentions, which we already know, but we would love to see it in writing. More broadly, a full accounting would inevitably shed light on the growing number of Republicans who have openly renounced any obligation to accept election losses as legitimate and the overlap of that with the ongoing right-wing extremist embrace of naked political violence. That's Greg Sargent. And he closes saying all of which, of course, constitutes exactly the accounting Republicans don't want to see happen. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back from your very, very fun vacation. (laughs) Um, You know, it's kind of funny, actually, that you say that. I mean, I had a nice I had a nice time. It was nice to be in a different place for a little while. The only traveling that I've done in the last year was to Airbnbs in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So this was a fun something different. But at the same time, it was really kind of dead in Vegas. So it had this eerie, like pandemic fog kind of hanging over it. Like everywhere was half full. A lot of venues were closed. And so it was hard to, not hard to enjoy myself, but it was definitely with a feeling of sort of melancholy of like, oh yeah, like half a million people have died in the last year. Things are not the same. <laughs> yeah. And a lot, you know, a lot of governors in states are, are now pulling away unemployment insurance. There's uh, uh, people trying to get back to work. And it's it's you know, we still have this. Mm-hmm. We're still in this pandemic. Fought. We're still in transition. And you have you have a story about I do these Republican governors. So chipper. I haven't been on the beans in forever. And I'm like, hey, everyone, the chipper Mandy Reader is back for you. <laughs> in the next story from the Washington Post, Republican governors in 25 states. So that's half of them are in the midst of a giant economic experiment, ceasing enhanced jobless aid for an estimated 4 million people, arguing that the generous benefits are dissuading people from going back to work. But a number of these governors have personal connections to businesses that are trying to find workers. Oh, wow. I'm so shocked. I'm <laughs> deeply shocked. What? Yeah, I know. Are you, are, are you shocked, AG? I am. I am shocked. Yeah, it's my shocked face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And according to a Washington Post preview of financial disclosures from state elected officials in New Hampshire, for example, the governor's family invests in a large resort that has many employees in North Dakota. The governor sits on the board of a family agricultural business that is seeking to fill numerous jobs, including posts for truck drivers and technicians. And Mississippi's governor is a shareholder in his father's air conditioning and supply firm. You would want air conditioning to sit It's swampy down there, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that kind of humidity, to be honest. <laughs> These are among the many governors who have taken steps to cut expanded jobless aids in, um, in recent weeks. And in West Virginia, Governor Jim Justice owns a resort and has been looking for dozens of new employees in recent weeks. Until recently, he had received far fewer applications than normal. Also, why are governors allowed to have these just out in the open business interests when presidents aren't? It doesn't make any sense to me. Someone explain that to me. Mm, I know why. Mm. (laughs) Some local officials have complained about justice and his business connections for years and his move to limit unemployment assistance has drawn fresh scrutiny. Surprise, surprise. West Virginia, you are sucking hard right now. Early studies last summer found that extra benefits had not affected employment rates or rehiring or found no evidence that they did so. A May 26 research note by J.P. Morgan found that although some of the states that are reducing their benefits early have signs of a tight labor market and strong growth in hourly wages, many of them do not. It therefore looks like politics rather than economics is driving decisions regarding the early ends of these programs. No shit. Yeah, you think? Wowie. <laughs> yeah. And as far as West Virginia is second, it's, it's not the people. It's the government. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, we just learned that 79% of West Virginians support the infrastructure, the HR1, totally. the For the People Act, which Joe Manchin it represents them. But he says, I don't even know what he says. I can't make any sense of it. This is how I explain just America in general to my pompous Canadian relatives who wonder why I live here. Hey, the government deserves on the people. You guys, they want 
they want better health care. Come on. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at you, Joe Manchin, not you, Everett West Virginian. You are obviously awesome. We need to fix that. The government should represent the people. Yes. That's uh, written in that paper thingy from the 17 ish. Yeah. Or whatever. Just some document that we refer to sometimes. I don't even know. Now, Speaking of that, speaking of mansion, Biden is Dunsky. Okay, infrastructure talks between Biden, uh, according to the lead Republican Capito, are over. And instead, Biden is now going to focus on a different bipartisan group of senators to deal with the issue. Uh, Biden spoke to Capito this afternoon for just five minutes, during which the talks completely collapsed. The negotiations have been going on for several weeks and the Republicans could not come up to a number acceptable for Biden for his American jobs plan. We had seen Biden willing to come down quite a lot from 2.3 trillion, I think, to 1.5 or 6, something like that. Uh, But they also couldn't agree on how to pay for the bill. Biden wanted to tax the rich to pay for it, while Republicans wanted to pillage COVID relief money that has already been appropriated. Uh, Capito says, while I appreciate the time and effort Biden has put into these negotiations, he ultimately chose not to accept the robust and targeted infrastructure package we proposed. Yeah. okay. Progressive Democrats have been calling for the White House to end the talks and move on. And that's looking like it's that's what's happening. Biden is traveling to Europe for a week. So Ron Klain, chief of staff, is expected to take the reins on this while Biden is away. So now Biden is focusing on this second bipartisan group to hash out a deal. And that group will be meeting tonight. Uh, the group is being led by Senator Kirsten Cinema, also part of the group, your friend Joe Manchin. On the Republican side, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was the Republican side. Uh, on the Republican side, We have Senators Rob Portman and Mitt Romney helping take the lead on the talks. They're probably going to be they're probably going to (laughs) be like more liberal than Cinnamon Manchin. Uh, But Democrats are still pushing to scuttle this effort too. progressives are like, just stop with all this dumb stuff. They're confident that because there are Republicans in the group, we will never get what we want. But Schumer has indicated he's willing to go it alone and just to, you know, just negotiate with the Democrats through the budget reconciliation process. As of now, you cannot get Cinema and Manchin to go along with a Democrat only bill. So we have to go through with this phase two bipartisan exercise, this charade, even if only to show Cinema and Manchin we tried once, but not twice, and no one would negotiate. Meanwhile, Chairman of the Budget Committee, Bernard Sanders, says he's done with the bullshit. I'm done with the bullshit. (laughs) And he's going to start marking up the budget as soon as July. Uh, He has very little patience for these negotiations. So if this new bipartisan effort falls apart, which probably it's going to, can they get 50 Democrats to agree on one spending bill? That's going to be the challenge. We will see. I think it would be a disgrace to the people of Georgia if they can't. (laughs) Let's be real. Also, let's go back to one of the one of the quotes here from uh, from Capito. Robust and targeted at the same time. Explain me how that works. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of targeted things. Uh-huh. I think what I think what Capito is trying to say is we hey, we were willing to spend like nine hundred and twenty eight billion dollars, which you'll never hear a Republican want to do. But we only wanted to do it on specifically the roads and bridges and what we consider to be, you know, traditional infrastructure and we don't want to we want to we want to use your covid money to pay for it we don't we don't want to have new money uh, come out of my rich people pockets that's yeah don't tax the rich don't do anything to do with the uh, green infrastructure mm. yeah mm. great great offer all right next up the senate began to approve president biden's first judicial nominees this week making the start of an ambitious push to make an impact on the federal courts after oh god so many brutal years of trump slapping them <laughs> the Senate voted 66 to 33 on Tuesday to confirm Julian Xavier Niels to be a district court judge in New Jersey. And then on Tuesday, Regina M. Rodriguez to be a district court judge in Colorado. The two were advanced in committee last month, along with three other nominees, including Tanji Brown Jackson for the most powerful Woo-hoo. U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Hell yeah. Our next Supreme Court justice. You think so? Uh, yeah, she's going to be the one as long as Breyer fucking retires like he should. Yeah, heard it here first, people. A vote on Jackson in the full Senate is expected in the coming weeks. She is seen as a likely shortlister for a Supreme Court vacancy should one open up during Biden's presidency. And fingers crossed, everyone. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not that someone dies, obviously, but someone retires, obviously. <laughs> Want to put that out there. <laughs> fingers crossed that Breyer does the right thing and steps down. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no people dying, Juju. Um, thank you. <laughs> the court's focused progressive group Demand Justice launched a six-figure ad campaign Monday to support uh, to build support for Jackson, targeting Black audiences on radio and digital platforms. 
Schumer also recommended two voting rights lawyers for judgeships, uh, Mirna Perez of the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University for the Second Circuit of Court of Appeals, and Dale Ho of the American Civil Liberties Union for the Southern District of New York. Niels and Rodriguez were nominated for judgeships during the Obama administration, but did not come up for votes in the Senate, which was run then by Republican Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the current minority leader. And I got to say, at least he's the minority leader. It feels good to say that anymore. It feels good to say minority leader. We at least have that. Under precedents established by both parties, the 60 vote threshold has been abolished for all judicial confirmations. Nominees can advance with simple majorities. See, you can. You can get rid of the filibuster. It's possible. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> and Department of Justice has issued a statement saying it's going to defend Trump or at least the institution of the office of the presidency in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Uh, I have several issues with the arguments here. I happen to agree with the D.C. district judge that ruled that they can't. Uh, because Trump's statements denying uh, any rape allegations were made, you know, they're saying because they, they were made during his presidency, that they're covered as part of his job. Uh, I disagree. The D.C. Circuit Court judge disagreed. Uh, and we're going to talk to Barb McQuaid about that in a little bit. But first, I have that discussion about getting back to normal with the host of the new Abnormal podcast, Molly Jong Fast. That'll be right up after the break. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's Allison, and I want to thank you for supporting the pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Upstart. If you're carrying credit card debt around with you month after month, paying the minimum payments, not digging that hole out any deeper, do not stress. You are not alone. So many people were living off credit cards during the pandemic. High interest rates make it hard to pay it off, but Upstart can help. Join the thousands of happy borrowers who made that final payment. Upstart can lift the financial weight off your shoulders so that you can feel the relief of being free of credit card debt. Upstart is the fast, easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all done online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get simple, fixed monthly rates. Unlike other lenders, Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. You're more than just a number to them. Uh, They look at your income, your employment history, stuff like that, which means they can offer smarter rates with their trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000, and you can receive funds in as fast as one business day after your loan is accepted. After this past year, like I said, I know so many people struggling who want to get out of that financial hole. You have to check out Upstart. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash dailybeans. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and other information provided on your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash dailybeans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am honored today to be joined by writer, editor at large, The Daily Beast and host of the podcast that you have to check out. It's called The New Abnormal. Please welcome Molly Jong Fast. Molly, it's great to see you again. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I wanted to bring you on today because I read your piece in Vogue called Why It Is So Hard to Return to Normal. And it really resonated with me. And I'm sure it resonated with a lot of readers and I hope everybody gets a chance to read it. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, your thoughts specifically about getting back to normal now that COVID is, quote unquote, ending. So weird. I mean, I have been thinking about this a lot because I've written a lot about COVID and what it means and like what the experience of living through a pandemic is and what I mean, it's just like a very, you know, it's I mean, I think about like the things that as a writer, have really affected me in my life, right? 9-11, I lived in New York, was 21 during 9-11. 9-11 had a huge effect on me because I lived right near it and I knew all these people who got sick and died from, you know, other stuff. You know, I knew people, and not all these people, but I knew a few people who had lived near there and gotten sick from the, you know, they got cancer or whatever. So I had that had an effect on me. And then this really, really affected me and it really affected everyone. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I had had this grandfather, my mother's father, though my other grandparents must have too, because of the timing, but my mother's father lived through the uh, flu pandemic and was so affected by it that it was just sort of one of the kind of tropes of his life. And so and he would talk about it all the time and it would just it shaped his behavior. You know, I mean, he would die. He was in his 90s and he just certain things from the plant, the flu plant pandemic. Never, he never got over them. So I had spent I had always been thinking about it and I I wanted to write about it. I mean, 
the problem with it, the problem with the idea of getting back to normal is that, and I mean, this is true, you know, it's more true in some places and less true in other places, but like we are a country that has gone through, you know, a sort of inconceivable, un, uh, you know, unquantifiable loss, right? I mean, if you look, 9-11 was, you know, 3,000 people. Ultimately, it ended up being many more, but it still wasn't like the law, you know, pan, the pandemic is 10, you know, it's what, 36,000 New Yorkers. I mean, some crazy, you know, 10 times the magnitude of 9-11. So, and again, the counting isn't even, we don't even really have the counting, right? So it is this kind of inconceivable, uh, inexplicable loss. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about these once in a lifetime events like 9-11 and the pandemic and, and more than once in a lifetime, once in a century or or more. And I think a lot of this has to do with trauma. Like I've experienced like trauma has shaped my behavior. Right. But the trauma that I went through, uh, I went through a couple of times at different points in my life. It's kind of a more typical trauma, I guess, with sexual assault, sexual harassment. And so I kind of am you know, familiar with that kind of trauma. And I think it's different when it's something like a pandemic that none of us have any experience on how to deal with that trauma. And we can't ask our parents, you know, you, you, you say in your article three, I think three out of five Democrats are ready and excited to return to normal, but two are not. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, when you brought up your one grandfather, but not the other grandparents, it's like, well, he's, he's part of that too. Right. That, that it really shapes your behavior moving forward. Well, you see, I mean, that's the joke of all there are, I mean, even I live in New York and there are a lot of people who are, I mean, again, you want to be respectful when you're in the elevator, but you know, I mean, I am vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated with the vaccine that has a 96% efficacy rate and that works on the variants. So like me wearing a mask in the elevator is theater. Now I am willing to do that theater for you because I understand and that we've had a year of Republicans refusing to wear masks and all of that. But it's not it's an emotional thing. It's not a you know, it's not a scientific thing. And so and the, and we are lefting. I mean, for, luckily for us, right, like the, we are so lucky, right, because we have this Biden administration where he's run by, you know, the chief of president, chief of staff worked on Ebola, right? And worked on N1H1 and like has all this experience. So we have been very, I mean, very, very, very lucky to like have an uh, administration. I mean, I don't think the thing I'm shocked by is like Democrats are so bad at messaging. Like the the rest of the world is still drowning in COVID, right? Even Canada, right? Canada, which is smaller and better organized and has Central, you know, has this medicine, you know, a government medicine. They can't fucking get it together. I mean, England, which had which actually bought the vax in the way they were supposed to the way the U.S. did and didn't do this EU thing of trying to negotiate. They still couldn't get it together. You know, they have people with mixed match vaccines and people waiting too long to get the vaccine. I mean, so like America is really the only country in the world. I mean, except for maybe very tiny countries. Right where like there are teeny, teeny countries in certain areas that are very, very small where they met, you know, and Israel, Israel. But America is one of the very few countries where they were able to do it. And again, as you and I both know, America and Israel are even comparable because there's so much America, so many magnitude, so many, so much bigger and it's a much different population. So you have this like amazing, amazing situation where it's really a country that is unlike the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, we have more than 50% vaccinated. We have this very good vaccines that are still have very high efficacy. We have, it seems like, and again, we don't really know. I mean, this is part of why it's hard to get back to normal. So we don't know, right. We don't know what the variant's going to be, but for now, the variants really um, respond to the vaccine. So we so everything that we could hope for went right. But the problem is now there's this, you know, how do you tell people that they everything we've been telling you for the last year now doesn't count and go off and go have dinner and go to a movie and stand in a packed room and don't wear a mask because you're fine. I mean, it's it's very counterintuitive. 
Oh, yeah. It would be like telling me, uh, go ahead, go back to go go to the Marine Ball, be around men in uniform in, in large crowds and, and totally feel safe. Uh, you should just be able to do that now. And, you know, I do want to say we're at a decided advantage because we manufacture the vaccines here and we're kind of have have control over global distribution. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, with Canada and all these other countries. Uh, they're sort of at the mercy of of our distribution, um, or or they're definitely at the mercy of our uh, distribution. Yeah. I mean, the UK has has a vaccine, but yeah, right. no, I mean, and and America needs to be sending more vaccines to people, and they need to be yeah. focused on on doing that and and donating vaccines, and especially to South America, where that you know we are connected to them. Like that is our you know we that. So, you know, you have COVID there, you have COVID in Mexico, you have COVID in America. And and the same is true for Canada and, and the same is true for the world. So, uh, yes, 100 percent. But it is a very good right now. We are in a very lucky situation. And mm-hmm. now we have to figure out what we're going to do with that. And is and I think it is very hard for people, you know. Yeah. And you, you point out, too, that an, another author in Bloomberg said that a May survey showed that 39 percent of a thousand surveyed would consider quitting if their employers weren't flexible about remote work. Now we've got some uh, employers demanding people come back to the office now that we've proven we can work from home and remotely. And a lot of people want to continue to do that. And so now they have to return to the office. And, you know, I think that we're also seeing this. You you bring up the fact that uh, we've lost so many cooks and chefs and servers and frontline workers. And and of course, uh, Republicans are calling this a labor shortage when right. when really it's people, first of all, reluctant to return to work. It's dangerous. There are fewer right. of them. And thicker. yeah. And, you know, the, it's also do I want to go back to work for two dollars and sixty four cents an hour and right. with a shitty boss? Right. Like So it's, there are, so there are a number of really complicated uh, reasons why people aren't going back to work. And some of them are right. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, But what's so interesting to me is that the messaging from Republicans has been so smart and so, you know, organized. And it's been it's been this insane thing that Democrats, the the unemployment was too high. And that's why people wouldn't go back to work. And they're just living it up on their seven hundred dollars a week. And, you know, that's why they don't want to work is because it's Democrats are, are, you know, and so a lot of these red states have taken it away, which is like, if you imagine there are people, these working people are voting for governors who are taking away their money to make them more uncomfortable because they think that will make them work. And I would say that some of the what's happened with labor shortages of people are, you know, if you read these statistics, like the, the like the percentage of people who died who are line cooks is right. insane, right? I mean, I read that like four times. And I was like, that can't be right. And like the percentage of people who died who worked in like meat processing plants, right? I mean, these these people were sacrificed so that we could stay in our houses and order burgers, right? And that was a decision right. that Americans made largely. And there wasn't much discussion about it because we had a Republican president at the time and that was it. So we have this huge quantity of people who have died. And then we have, and I think that this is something, again, like the larger trauma of COVID that we don't talk about. We have um, a large percentage of people who are so sick, right? Like COVID long haulers is a real thing. And, you know, is it 30%, is it 20%? It's a lot of people, right? A lot more people have had COVID than we even know, right? We know the reporting is off. We know that more people died from it, more people had it, more, you know, everyone, even like people like Rand Paul admit that the reporting is off, right? Right. Yeah. Estimates from IHWE say 900, closer to 900,000 have died or, you know, after calculating excess deaths and pulling out the very low numbers we had for the flu because we were all wearing masks and staying indoors. Yeah. uh, And not even accounting for that, like very conservative estimates, close to a million. It's um, right. And then you have and you have all these people who have these COVID long haul symptoms and we don't really know how to get rid of it or how to get them better or how to get them back to work. So, you know, and you're saying, like, why aren't they showing up at their two dollar, you know, their their, you know, their shitty job. And what's interesting, too, is that what's happened while this discourse has been going on, which has been like a gift to the Republican legislature. Right. 
There's, you know, no people don't want to work. They're so lazy. Well, this has been going on. Pay has gone up a little bit. And, you know, we are this country that has this famously bad federal uh, minimum wage. Like it's shittier than anywhere. Right. Like it's seven twenty five. It is, you know, in Belgium, it's eleven dollars. Like you can't fucking find a country with a lower minimum wage. And even Republicans are like. And and so the question is, if you have this bad minimum wage, very low and you have these people who don't want to go to back to work and you need people to work, you know, so that's where. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're right. And that's where we are. And I think it's, you know, I just kind of want to remind everybody it's OK if you're not ready to go back to normal just because, you know, there's there's this stigma, this mental health stigma in this country where invisible illnesses are somehow to be ignored you know, whereas uh, other kinds are not. And and I just want to reiterate that, that, that you know, that's OK. Um, right. And I mean, I would say the other thing is that there are people for whom the vaccine is not going to work as well. Yeah. Right. Like people who have very bad, you know, who've had cancer or had this or had that. And we already see reporting that says that it doesn't work as well for those people. So those people probably don't want to go to a movie theater or don't, you know, they want to be really careful and only be around vaccinated people and really. But, you know, that's not everyone. I mean, that's a pretty small percentage, but it's certainly a percentage. Yeah, agreed. And and speaking of abnormal, uh, I want to ask you about your show, which I love, called The New Abnormal. It's a podcast. Uh, what what prompted you to start that that particular show? So what happened was... We so Rick Wilson and I um, went and were always friends and we were both trapped in our houses because of the pandemic. And I said, let's just do that because he travels a lot. And I said, let's just do this and we'll just set it up. And and so we started doing it. And that was how and we have this very good. I mean, Rick doesn't do it now, but we have this great producer, Jesse, who's amazing. And. And uh, it started as a way to, you know, just because I was home all the time, I'm losing my mind. Uh, it ended up being, uh, you know, it's very fun for me. I love talking to people and I'm I am very interested in what they have to say. I, you know, I'm kind of an extrovert. And so uh, I've had a really great time doing it. Yeah, well, I, I love it. It's wonderful. Everybody needs to check it out. And everybody, please. Go ahead and, and, and read Molly Jongfast's piece for Vogue called Why Is It So Hard to Return to Normal? There's a lot of really incredible insights in there. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for spending time. I hope I get to talk to you again soon. I want to check back and see how the world is doing, how, you know, how we're doing as a country, too, in, in, in a few months. Yay. Thank you for having me. This is so great. You're welcome. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with Barb McQuaid to talk about the E. Jean Carroll case. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's A.G. And this portion of the beans is brought to you by All Form. They make the best furniture, luxury, custom for your home. Oh, I absolutely love it. Uh, I prefer something that's not cookie cutter basic. I don't want a couch that I see in everyone's house. And that's why I love All Form. They make the most beautiful, high quality furniture to fit your personal style. And they do it custom. Their sofas and chairs are designed to your specs and deliver directly to you with fast free shipping. You get to customize your own luxury furniture and you get to use premium materials, but at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. With All Form, you pick your spill stain scratch resistant fabric, really good for pod pets. Pick the color, the finish of the legs, the size, the configuration, uh, and it's all to your specifications. I got a three-seater sofa customized with whiskey color leather. I got a walnut leg finish because it matches my mid-century mod vibe. And a chaise lounge on the end for fainting when I faint. When Joe Manchin does something I just didn't expect. Uh, It came in a couple days. I put it together myself. I absolutely love it. It's modern. It's roomy. It's comfy. It's cozy. My favorite part is I designed it to my own specifications. The other great thing about Allform is how incredibly fast they deliver to you. Just three to seven days. If you wanted to get a custom sofa from a store, it would take months to, and somebody would have to come and put it together in your house. But three to seven days, and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. They send it in the mail too. No tools needed. No tools needed. They have beautiful armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight seat sectionals. So there's something for everyone. And you can always start small and add on later if you if your house gets bigger or your family gets bigger. Uh, and you get to keep it for 100 days to decide. If you love it, which you will, um, but that's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and they'll give you a full refund. So there's no risk. And they have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash daily beans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for listeners at allform.com slash daily beans. Everybody, welcome back. Today, I'm, I'm fortunate to be joined by former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid. Barb, hello. Hello, E.G. I'm 
a little upset <laughs> about what's going on with the decision from the Department of Justice in the E. Jean Carroll case, where they are going to continue to defend the former president uh, in his statements because he they they argue that he made them while he was in office. And they're doing this in the kind of under the guise of institutional interests or in to further institutional interests, maybe not even under the guise of. And I was I was wondering if you can tell us, give us a little bit of insight in this decision and when, why they're doing this. Yeah, so I think you're right to refer to it as protecting institutions. And I think that's what the Justice Department does, regardless of who the occupant is, that they are uh, taking this action to defend what they see as uh, conduct by a member of the executive branch in the scope of his duties. I think the argument, though, is a very aggressive reading of uh, the statute and the case law. Um, and here's why. Uh, when I served as U.S. attorney, I saw these kinds of requests from time to time. And the idea is that if a government employee uh, commits a tort while they are engaged in the scope of their official duties, then the United States will substitute itself in and say, tell you what, we're going to be the defendant, not Joe Letter Carrier. Uh, you can sue us. And we have consented to be sued for certain kinds of claims. And so if it is the letter carrier who gets in a car accident with his postal truck, uh, he's on duty and he's delivering mail, that would be a typical situation where the federal government would say, yes, this occurred um, by a government employee in the scope of his duties and uh, the United States should be substituted out as the defendant here. But the analysis is, is this, is it the kind of work that the person was hired to do? And did this work inure to the benefit of the United States? That Those are kind of the key questions. And when you look at the conduct here, it just seems like a real stretch to say that when President Trump made these allegedly defamatory comments about E. Jean Carroll, that he was doing so in the scope of his employment. It did not advance the interests of the United States. It was not the kind of thing for which he was quote unquote hired to do. In fact, the trial judge who initially decided the case in favor of Eugene Carroll. So the president isn't even an employee at all of the United States. He's something different. But even if he is an employee, and that's what the Justice Department argues here, it's hard to see how these statements, which the court said occurred, uh, related to conduct that occurred decades before he became president and related to his personal conduct, nothing to do with executing the duties of the office of the president, uh, can be seen as being within the scope of his employment. So that's why I think this argument is a stretch. Yeah, devil's advocate, because the, I'm assuming that this question's already come up before. Could Trump or the Department of Justice argue that if people are left to think that he raped E. Jean Carroll, that could be bad somehow for the country and therefore we need to defend or that therefore the statements are in the line of duty? Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Um, yes, E.G., I do. And in fact, um, that is um, exactly the argument that the Justice Department is making here, that it's essential to his ability to govern to be able to deny allegations. Um, and th th that's the gist of the argument. But boy, if you use that argument, then anything he says could be, uh, you know, used under that framework, right? It, it, well, it was all necessary for me to protect my sovereignty, to protect my, the public confidence, for me to uh, say and, and make up all kinds of crazy things because that was necessary to, to governing. And so it, it seems to me that this goes beyond the scope of that which he was hired to do or that which inures to the benefit of the United States. An example of that might be, um, A.G., there were times when we would turn down a request by a government employee to represent them and to substitute the United States in as a defendant. Say that same postal worker, uh, you know, who the United States would step in if he was simply in his car driving and delivering the mail. If he instead... Uh, decided to use his mail truck for drag racing. Uh, or if uh, even though he's, he's on the clock, he uh, uh, assaults uh, someone on his route because he's mad at him. Um, we would say that's beyond the scope of his duties. And hey, man, you're on your own. You got to defend this lawsuit yourself because you were out ah. acting outside the scope of what you were hired to do here. And I would say the same is true with regard to President Trump's misconduct in this case, or alleged misconduct. The, um, you know, it, it is important to, to look at process versus substance. And I think sometimes people do get distracted by that. Um, you know, if you don't like Donald Trump, then you say this Justice Department shouldn't defend him. That's not the question. If you think the conduct was ugly or uh, repulsive in some way, or the words themselves uh, were objectionable. Again, that's not the test. It is to look at it 
um, independently in a nonpartisan way as the president did this thing? And was it within the scope of his employment? Um, you know, I, I suppose it's it's arguable, but I think it's a very aggressive argument for the Justice Department to make. Yeah, I agree. I agree with the D.C. Circuit Court judge on this uh, and, and their interpretation, which is why I'm, I'm just a little flummoxed by this. And, and this is, I think, acting assistant attorney general of civil division, Boynton, Brian Boynton, who also recently blocked lawyers from taking sworn deposition from Betsy DeVos. This is the same guy. Yeah. So, again, I, I think that what we're seeing here is uh, a Justice Department that is working very hard to defend the institutions and members of the executive branch, regardless yeah. of who held those positions. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something, and I, I don't know if that's what's happening here. It may very well be that they are just this is their good faith argument and they think that they are, are taking well-founded positions. I disagree with them personally, um, but it also yeah. could be, and it definitely creates this perception for me that they're kind of like the dad who coaches his own kid in little league. Uh, look at me. I'm so fair that I'm going to bench my own kid, even though he's the best player on the team. Aren't I great? Aren't I so fair? Well, People like that, except when it's the wrong decision, in which case, you know, the team loses and nobody's happy. Yeah. And especially in the face of a Justice Department, we're trying to restore faith in, you know, I think it's the public facing decisions that you make are, are, are very important in that in those cases. Right. And I think it's important to be independent and nonpartisan and to look at these things regardless of who the occupant of the office is. But in these cases, by taking these, um, you know, pretty aggressive positions on this and on you know, defending the lawsuit to clear Lafayette Square and protecting the bar memo. You know, at some point, I think it um, causes the public to feel like uh, the Justice Department is so concerned about preserving its reputation that it's actually bending over backwards and getting the decisions wrong. Yeah, we always we often ponder uh, when does when does secrecy or, or institutional protection reach that tipping point where it does more harm than good? Uh, and and you you know you you did say though the White House was not consulted on this. This is something. This is a decision. The E. Jean Carroll case is a decision that, that Biden was against when he was asked about it earlier on the campaign trail. But the White House has said that they were not consulted on this. And and just a, a weird question. Boynton is a Biden appointee, the guy who made this decision here. But is there a way that this could have happened without Merrick Garland knowing? I doubt it because it involved Trump. Yeah. You know, typically when you have a very significant matter, and I would put this in that category, you know, one that is likely to get a lot of public scrutiny, um, someone who is a component head like that would submit what's known as an urgent report to the, the, the deputy attorney general so that if uh, requested, the AG or the DAG can get a briefing on it. And because of the sensitivity of this, I would have to think that they were at least aware of this decision uh, and had the ability to stop it if they disagreed. I would also say as an acting uh, AG, he is not an, a Biden appointee. He is uh, a career person who's taken on that job until someone can be appointed to, to fill that role. Um, but nonetheless, I, you know, it's, it's a career person who is likely uh, calling it as he sees it. And it is likely... Um, true that the Biden White House had no involvement in this decision. That's the way it's supposed to go. The Justice Department makes these decisions on the basis of the law without regard to the political views of the White House. You know, certainly the White House has the ability to impose policy on DOJ, as Biden recently has with regard to press subpoenas uh, or uh, to indicate priorities. I want you to go after opioids uh, instead of marijuana, those kinds of things. But when it comes to individual case decisions, that really is left to the lawyers at the Department of Justice. I mean, I, 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 I suspect they made this decision in good faith, but that um, it's a very aggressive read. And, you know, I can't help but think that there may be at least some implicit bias in favor of protecting the institutions to restore that uh, public perception of independence. But in this instance, I personally feel like they've gone too far. Yeah, I agree with you. And I appreciate your time today. And uh, my apologies, I'm going to look up more about in the background of uh, Boynton here. I just have uh, the public reporting that uh, the Biden Justice Department hired him for chief deputy and acting head of civil division. But he he had been there prior. It wasn't like he but he like came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> so and, just... and no doubt, you know, he is somebody that this uh, leadership is is comfortable with leading that division. So it isn't, uh, you know, that he's likely to be some some rogue. And let me add one other thing, Ag, the significance of this position. If 
DOJ prevails in substituting the United States as the defendant here, it is quite likely that that's the end of the case for E. Jean Carroll because the United States has not consented to be sued for the tort of defamation. And so it will say, it will assert sovereign immunity and file a motion to dismiss and will likely to succeed. So that's why this issue is critical to the whole case. But uh, a, a court could decide to not allow uh, Department of Justice to to be defense in this case? So the, the decision comes down to this, this idea, yes, that whether Donald Trump was acting in the scope of his employment so that the United States can substitute itself for Donald Trump as the defendant. That's the issue that DOJ has appealed right now. And if DOJ mm-hmm. prevails, then that will, the next step would be to file a motion to dismiss and, and that would succeed if the United States is the defendant. And if they don't prevail, I assume that that can go up higher. Well, yes, the next step would be to take it to the Supreme Court. Right now, this is the uh, appeal pending in the uh, Circuit Court of Appeals after the district court ruled in favor of Eugene Carroll. Goodness. All right. Good to know. Thank you so much for your insight. <laughs> I appreciate it, Barb. Okay, G. Thanks. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for the beans, and I have a great recommendation for simple, straightforward self-care that does not add stress to your routine, because that would be weird to do some self-care that stresses you out more. That makes no sense. It's called Caliper CBD. Since I've been taking Caliper CBD, I've noticed improvement in my stress levels, my sense of calm, my, my pain and soreness after workouts. I'm able to fall asleep easier. And the best part is with Caliper CBD, I can get all the benefits without changing that routine that I was telling you about. It's so convenient because they've created an easy to use, more effective CBD powder, which is clinically proven. It's the only clinically proven fast-acting CBD, actually. So rather than taking oil and tinctures, which you have to hold into your tongue and wait for an hour to work, and you're not sure how much you're taking, Caliper CBD delivers 30 times more CBD in the first 30 minutes. You can get all the benefits in just 10 minutes. It starts to work in 10 minutes. It was developed by food science experts with decades of experience tested for purity and quality. You don't get that weird taste or oily residue, so it mixes easily in food or drink. And there's 20 milligrams of the CBD powder in each packet. So again, you know exactly how much you're taking. Uh, It's helped me calm down and relax, even when the stress can get overwhelming. And it's THC-free, so I can feel better without the disorienting high. It's had such a great impact on my life that my friends have noticed, my family's noticed. Uh, It's all natural, vegan, non-GMO, free of fillers, no chemicals, no artificial flavors. And you can get 20% off your first order when you use our promo code DAILYBEANS at tricaliper.com slash dailybeans. You can try Caliper CBD risk-free for 30 days. If you don't love it, but you will, it will give you a full refund. So there's no risk here. Just go to tricaliper.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget promo code dailybeans for 20% off your first order. And today, uh, our show is also brought to you by the wonderful people at Helix Sleep. We know how important sleep is. I think it's one of the most important things. Uh, You know, I used to sit up wondering, why isn't Giuliani in jail yet? I thought it was uh, that kind of stress that was keeping me awake, but it turned out my mattress was not customized to my sleep preferences. Hence comes Helix Sleep to the rescue. They recognize each of us sleep differently, and they customize the mattress to fit you and the way you sleep. They created an online sleep quiz that just takes a couple of minutes to complete. It's very user-friendly. And they use your answers to match your body type and preferences to the perfect mattress for you. It's like the mattress was made for you. Uh, it's if, like I like a medium firm bed, and I sleep on my side, so they matched me with the Helix Midnight. Uh, I love it. It's the most comfortable mattress I've ever had, ever. But you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick in 2019 and then again in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, take their two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights with no risk. They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, uh, but you will. And Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's Helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash Daily Beans for up to $200 off. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news. It's on the way. And back with me is Mandy Reedy. Hello. Hello. This is my favorite part of the show. We're going to go Ooh. over the listener submitted good news, uh, confessions, corrections. We've got a couple of new games. We have What the Mutt, you know, where we guess what mixed breed your dog is. We Ooh. have Find the Cat, if you want to send me a photo at, of a, a hidden kitty and I have to find it. We have Where's <laughs> the Swear, if you have a fun swear that you've always loved that you want to share because this is news with swearing. We also, we have a couple, we have all sorts of games. Anyway, if you have anything you want to send in or you think of a new game you want to play, you can send that to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. I will kick us off, Mandy, with a submission from Anonymous. This is a correction. 
No pronouns given. Hello, Allison and Dana. You are the best and have kept me informed. Not so much a correction, but a clarification. I am a vendor for Costco roadshows in Canada. The average (laughs) grocery store has 40,000 items, whereas the average Costco has 4,000 items. To keep the store fresh and exciting, they hold roadshows for a limited time. They can be regional or national, and most of the items tend to be higher end or special. I'm currently selling high-end cookware, and my mom is disappointed that I tell people I'm a pot dealer. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I encourage people to take advantage of Costco's return policy. No one needs to sleep on a treason pillow. (laughs) Treason pillow is the name of the episode. (laughs) I have no pets currently. Please uh, know I will make up for it by giving my puppy niece extra treats when I see her next. And Mandy, what that's about is yesterday somebody mentioned a, a Costco roadshow and we thought it was like some sort of antiques roadshow thing where you bring in your Costco purchases and and, and have them appraised. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now I know what a Costco roadshow is and that makes sense. And I want to buy some of your high-end cookware. So shoot me a note. Excellent. Hmm. Next up, we have Meg, pronoun she, her. Uh, after 20 years out of college, I finally, finally, all caps, get to start my first big girl job as a data support analyst thanks to an autism at work program. Due to my autism, it has taken me a while to find my footing because I don't appear to be obviously autistic. I haven't been diagnosed until my 30s after many years of trials and errors. Even now, the resources for almost middle-aged grownups like me to help manage my disabilities are seriously lacking. It's a long story, so I won't bore you with too many details. Anyway, I'm excited, but a little nervous. Meg, you're going to do awesome. You are going to be so freaking awesome. Uh, for pet pics, I'm including a picture of our cats, Frankie and Callie, as kittens. Oh, my gosh. Unfortunately, Callie, the calico, passed away in 2017, close to her ninth birthday. She did not live to see the orange monster get thrown out of office. Frankie is still very much alive and loves to make appearances on Zoom calls where she steals the show. <laughs> her Zoom appearances, along with Trump's defeat and Carlos um, Alzalquiz's Alza impression of Dr. Fauci, are the three good things about 2020. You do a good show. Keep it up. Look at these beautiful babies. Beautiful babies. Oh, so fluffy and soft appearing. And I bet actual. Mm -hmm. What honeys. I'm so sorry you lost Callie. She's lovely. And I I would love to see. I would love to see what Frankie looks like now, especially on the Zoom calls. Next up from (laughs) Mary Brodown, she and her. My good news is that my husband, Adrian, started graduate school last month. He's enrolled in a 100% online MBA in accounting program at Fitchburg State University, a public university located in Fitchburg, that's Massachusetts. Adrian needed a program that's completely online because he works during the week and can't really take time off from work to drive to classes. Plus, the tuition at Fitchburg State was more affordable than some of the other programs that he looked at. It also helps that the company that he currently works at offers tuition reimbursement to their current employees. That's so wonderful. I'm glad you work for a company that does that, Marion. Congratulations to Adrian. That is so awesome. Uh, accounting, rad. My MBA, I think, is an HRLR. But uh, it's such a it's a great degree to have, and I'm so happy for y'all. That is awesome. Congrats. Also, love schools that offer all online classes because we mm. more and more people need the flexibility now. For many reasons. Okay, next up. Oh, and I see a pet. There's a pet happening below this one. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no pronouns. Thanks for your nice comments about Mixie last week. Mixie, is this, uh, is this the kid, the kitty below? Is that the kitty's name? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd previously posted this photo of her on Facebook after the hubby and I voted in 2020. Someone who works at the Board of Elections reached out, reached out and asked if she could use her as a sort of unofficial mascot. She said, today the Mixie fan reached out again and reminded me that early voting starts in New York. June 12th for mayor, and it was time to roll out the mascot again. Feel free to use it if you like. No need to read this on air, <laughs> but tell you New Yorkers to vote, please. Oh, well, too late. New Yorkers, vote, please. <laughs> and then we have a photo of Mixie holding up a sign, a sticker that says, I voted early. So <laughs> in honor of Mixie and all pod pets, New Yorkers, vote vote early. Yes. And we intend to make a uh, a beans appreciation ad with her soon, just so you know. Uh, look at that arm. Hello, arm. That's a very long <laughs> arm. The long arm of the kitty of Mixie. And uh, yeah, New Yorkers, do it. June 12th for mayor. Maya Wiley is my pick. Uh, I don't live there. But uh, I know AOC has endorsed her along with the National Organization of Women. Uh, she's gotten a, she's gotten a ton of endorsements. And, and I think she's she would be a wonderful mayor, although you have a lot of good folks to choose from. Next up, Robbie, 
uh, pronouns none given. Good evening, Beans Queens. I mailed a couple of months ago whilst in Kenya. I'm home and only have good news. Uh, my partner and I have rescued a stray puppy. Oh, we named him James after my late grandfather, who had a big, big bushy eyebrows and, and was scruffy. When we first got him home a month ago, he was scared of his own shadow and everything else. It's been a month now and he's happy as any pup could be, albeit still not a fan of being on his own. But he's come a long way from being a petrified little pup in the kitchen to loving everyone he meets. Keep up the great work with the pod. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. He's what a what a gentleman. So cute. That is a that is a gentleman dog. Is that the, is he a needs a little top hat. He's so adorable. And I love I his love giraffe that. toy. <sighs> so cute. This is giving me so much serotonin. You you would not believe. Thank you mm. so much, uh, Robbie, for that. All right. Next up, Brent in Wisconsin. Hi, Allison and Dana. Sorry, I'm not Dana, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'm a fine substitute. I'm an independent author and I have something fancy and new that I'm super excited to report. I, I love messages that start that way. My novella, Cruise Roosters, has been made into an audiobook, and that audiobook is now available for Audible users to get their hands on and stuff in their ears. The lady who narrated is named Jordan, not Coburn, but every bit is awesome. <laughs> Her initial <laughs> blew me away and the final product is better than I could have hoped. Um, the, the story itself is a plea for unity in the end. Up until then, it is a brutal near future nightmare. That doesn't sound so pleasant. <laughs> that should have a very large trigger warning on the cover. Bruce is a sport and the players are called Brewsters. The story follows a young sportscaster named Molly Most who catches the eye of the nation's ruler. His name is the Prophet King. <laughs> He's as cruel as he is dumb. Fans of horror and sci-fi are invited to give it a listen. If you need me, I'll be here basking in the joy this audiobook has brought me. Thank you for all your hard work. Beans, queens, hugs, hugs to you, my fellow listeners. And then there is like a super cool sci-fi looking book cover um, that uh, he sent to us as well. Oh, that looks Very awesome. Cool. That art is pretty great, man. Mm -hmm. I really like it. I really, really cool. like it. Oh, so happy. So happy for you. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Next up, Randy, pronouns he and him. Randy, the amazing Randy. Bonjour, Reine de Legume. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm you did. Not. It says hello, oh. beans queens. Oh, ooh, thank you. I forgot. <laughs> you're you welcome. know that language. I do speak French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your, your delight in words is making me think too much about swearing. My own personal gem has always been fuck a duck from schoolyard for schoolyard rhyme. I remember that one. Did you ever notice that every school has a different second couplet? Anyway, tell me if you'd be interested in hearing about comparative swearing in various languages. Yes, I would, Randy. And I can uh, dedicate a whole message to where's the swear. But today I want to pronounce the towns or whatever the name we're using. Oh, we have a we have a, a game called Pronounce the Towns where people send us like towns like mm. Worcester, but it's spelled Worc Worcester, you know, and we have to try to oh my god ag i have to play this game and i have to send you towns from where i grew up in nova scotia because we have some really wild place names some of them mm -hmm. we have a lot of place names in nova scotia which are um the indigenous language Mi'kmaq, and they are really like you would have no idea so i'm gonna send those in <laughs> yeah and i totally want to I, I totally want to respect those indigenous languages too so what i've been thinking about doing is actually if you're going to send in you know, a non-European, non-UK, like Worcester type town name that is uh, an indigenous word. I would I would also like to give a little history on it and so that we can learn how to say Heck, it properly yes. and mm -hmm. learn a little bit about the history of it. And that's because uh, I'm really, really all about that. And um, I love that. You know, I don't want to I don't want it anyway to seem like I'm mocking anyone other than myself when I'm trying to pronounce these words. Um, first of all, while the pronunciation isn't difficult, Randy continues, it's a little confusing for me to travel between Morristown, New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey, and in between them is Morrisville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> anyway, being from New Jersey, I wonder if you can pronounce the state capital, Trenton. Uh, I remember my mother being pissed at the voice of Stephanie Plum in her Janet Ivanovich audiobooks for getting it wrong. I also would love to know if you could pronounce Newark, New Jersey, and Newark, Delaware. I don't know if they're the same. In lieu of pet tax, I'd like to introduce you to this charming young buck I met while driving through Hopewell. Or is it Hopewell? Answers. Trenton is Trenton. Trenton. Okay. Newark is Newark. And Newark, Delaware is Newark. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, now I know the difference. Interesting. I only had heard of the, the Newark, New Jersey and Trenton. 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 Yeah. That's it's. it's <laughs> it's not Trenton. I, I hail from Trenton. You know, it's very different. Okay, here's a here's one on the fly for you. Pop quiz. Hmm. How how do most Canadians pronounce 
Toronto. Toronto, like with no T, maybe? Correct. Oh, woo-hoo. ding, 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 ding. You did it. Yay. Yeah. You don't pronounce the second T most of the time. Most Canadians would say Toronto as opposed to Toronto. Right. Yeah. And I, I kind of Toronto. That's kind of how I already say it. Yeah. I tend not to pronounce that extra T. Uh, although when I say the Vindman's name, I do say Vindman, but I, may, I make sure not to say Vindman because it's not that, but the D is there. So, I mean, there's just, it's, there's so many ways to pronounce so many things, but I'm very interested in learning how to pronounce the name of your town. And if you have an interesting history or origin or meaning of the word, I would love to share that too. I think we could all learn something. Uh, and you could do that by sharing anything that you need to share with us, good news included, confessions, corrections, et cetera, over at uh, dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. And Mandy, it's been so nice to have you back for day. And I love you so much. And I miss your face. And I know I'm going to get to see you this weekend, I think. Yes, you will. It's been so nice to be on. Thank you guys so much. Um, yes, I, everyone, if you don't follow me on Twitter already, at Mandy Reader, go and follow me on Twitter. I would love to, to catch up with the, the Beans fans over there. Absolutely. It's a great follow. And until tomorrow, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. I've been Mandy Reader. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. And the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.